0: Are you all familiar with Big Ben over in London? Has anybody ever been there to see Big Ben? A few of you have. I understand it's a, a phenomenal clock uh, there in London. Big Ben is this 15-ton bell. And it's in a 5-ton clock on the Tower of London there that's attached to the, the House of Parliaments. It was built in 1859, and, and it's famous for its accuracy. However, a few years back, scientists discovered that Big Ben was not quite as accurate as they thought. It was missing about two seconds a week. And so they got together to figure out what they could do to to fix that. And, And so they were looking at how do they measure the timing, whether it's on or off or not? And that's what they were they were concerned about. So they figured it's off by, this was their terminology, God's celestial timing. God's celestial timing. I mean, that's exactly really what it is. You see, because they measure time by the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planets in their their rotations, and their orbits within our universe, and they're in an exact precision with one another, and so we create time based upon them. They never change, and they're always perfect in their timing, but Big Ben wasn't. Big Ben was off just a little bit, and so they decided, how are we going to fix this? How are they able to adjust the clock to do that? because it was losing two seconds a week. So what they figured was they would take two pennies, right, a, a penny, and they would add those to the pendulum, which would increase the weight of the pendulum, causing it to increase its speed just a little bit more. Matter of fact, each penny that they added increased the speed 0.4 seconds a day. So you add a... <laughs> enough pennies on there to catch up with the time. And so now it is in perfect harmony with God's celestial clock, all right, and the uniqueness of how they do these things. I think when we begin to measure ourselves by God's standards, I'm convinced I don't hit the mark. I don't know about you, but I know that I'm, I'm way off, all right. And, and just like Big Ben, there are adjustments that need to be made. Maybe it's just a couple pennies in my pocket. I don't know. But there are adjustments that need to be made in my life and in my character to measure up to the exact precision of how God wants me to live. Paul continues on in his letter in Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 11 through 14, is what we're going to look at today. And we find in chapter 13 that he gives us very specific instructions about how we should live, about what is right and what is wrong and what we should do as we're being faithful to him. He reminds us that we are living in a very particular place in time, both in general history of the world, but also in our personal history of faith as an individual Christian where I live. And he points out that it is very important that we understand the time in which we live. Thank you, Carrie, for that passage. You, you tied right into my message, man. All right? We have to know the time in which we live. He also reminds us that in these various stages, uh, maybe compared to the terminology he's going to use, nighttime and daytime, light and dark. All right? So we talk about these things. And in the Bible, darkness often refers to uh It's symbolic for things that are evil, things that are wicked, things that are done in the darkness, under the cover of darkness, so that people don't see what's going on. And it represents the bad things. However, light represents the goodness and the truth and the wonderful things that are out there. As we begin to take a moment, I want us to, to pause for a second before we really get into the text. And I want to give you a quick run through of the history of our world, all right? You got it, a week or two? and <laughs> no, we won't do that. We, we just go briefly through some things, kind of break down this movement uh, in the history of our world from darkness to light to where we are today, all right? So the world and the history of our world, both physical and personal in our own lives, is described by three key decisions of God. The first one is that God decided he was going to create the cosmos. He was going to create the universe and everything that there is within it. The second decision God made that he was going to make people. He was going to make people with a free will to make decisions in this world. The third decision he made was to redeem this world and the universe because of the free will people who chose to do things against him and sin. So those are the three basic steps that takes place. And, and this last aspect of redemption really is the focal point of the Scripture because it entails for us God's plan of redemption, which deals with the incarnation of Jesus Christ coming into this world, His death on a cross, His burial in a grave, His resurrection from that grave, and His ascension into heaven. So let's look a little bit at stage one of God's plan we discover that He created the universe. He created everything that is. Genesis lays that out for us. And, and out of the darkness, Genesis tells us, He created light. So we begin with darkness, nothingness, and now we have light. And the world began as God intended it and He purposed it. And Adam and Eve, they were created, the first in the human race, with this wonderful relationship with God. And, and it was a, a perfect unity of a family-like experience that they had with God in this intimacy. And using this aspect of biblical darkness and light, this was definitely a period of light. Matter of fact, God would even come from heaven and walk with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden of Paradise. Now that's... Man, I would love to stroll through a garden with God and have conversation with you. This was definitely a place of light. But enters stage two in God's plan. We find that the universe has fallen from its perfect position. It is now a disgrace because of sin and the relationship that God once had with Adam and Eve and this world is now cursed because of sin. And so from Genesis chapter 3 onward, We see and we discover that sin has crept in and it is disrupting things until God's redemptive plan was put in place. And it began at that point when Jesus came into this world through his incarnation and through everything that he did. This was definitely now a period of darkness once again when the world was living in sin. Yet it was not total darkness because God was giving it some light in his communication of this aspect of redemption that was coming. It was going to put things aright. And as far as God's activities in history, the key word is preparation. Preparation. Throughout the Old Testament, you will see the story of, of the beginning of the world up until the point in which Jesus comes when the New Testament is created. And during that time frame, God is in preparation for this redemptive act of Jesus. So he's preparing everybody for this thing. Nearly everything what God was doing was making way for the Redeemer of the world to come in. And when Jesus was finally on this earth... He accomplished what was necessary to apply redemption for us all. So in terms of light and darkness, well, the Old Testament was definitely a period of darkness. However, there was a pinpoint of light, especially in Israel. He had selected a specific family group in which he would bring forth his plan. Now, Romans has told us all about that. And it would be coming through them to this point of eventually Jesus would come. All right? So it was dark with a little bit of light making people aware that on the horizon brilliant light was about to appear. In stage three of God's plan, the universe is partly redeemed and recreated by God's design and by His plan to apply His redemptive work Upon people, not necessarily the cosmos, the universe itself, all right? This is a period that we are currently living in right now. We're living in a period where God is applying His redemptive work to us, giving us more light. But yet, not everything is perfect yet. So in terms of darkness and light, the universe still is mostly in darkness, but light has been turned on in the church. Jesus himself makes this statement in John chapter eight, verse 12. He says, "I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life." And yet the universe is being redeemed only partly. That's because of the redemptive work of Jesus is only being applied. In in lessons, in two stages. The first one is on us, and the second stage will eventually be on the rest of the physical aspect of our world. Now, this first stage of his redemptive work started on the day of Pentecost. When he sent his spirit into this world, for those of us who would accept Christ, this would be the beginning of this redemption in our lives. And we experience this redemption of our hearts. Of our soul or inner being, not necessarily the physical aspect of who I am, through three things. First off, the sacrifice that he made, that Carrie is talking about, brings us forgiveness of our sins and justification. The second thing is this: there is a, there is a regeneration that takes place in us through the work of his spirit, whom he puts within us. And so the spirit then is making us new. Not just forgiving us of our sins, but creating within us something that is different. And the third step is going to be this ongoing holy living in our life because the Spirit is giving us works to do to live out our, our salvation. Now, the redemptive work of Christ has not yet been applied to the physical world. This world still has thorns and thistles. There is still death. There is still pain and injury and anger and hatred and all those other things that go with it. That change is going to take place in his final stage, which we'll kind of briefly talk about. However, God's main work in the world during this third stage is focused on the spiritual life of those who put their faith in Jesus. Now that brings us to stage four of God's plan. When the universe will finally be completely Redeemed, And then that final stage will occur at the second <coughs> coming of Jesus. We know he's already come once, and he's promised us he's going to come again. And when he comes again, all things are going to be made new once more that's going to be this final stage. So when his first thing that he will transpire will be the transformation of those who are Christians who put their faith in him, they will be transformed from this physical body that still is attached somehow to the sin of this world. It's going to be transformed into something new that no longer has sinful tendencies or desires. That's the one, first thing. And then secondly, you know, he's going to take everything within this world, and it will be then transformed into a new heaven and a new earth. All of this will be taking place at this final coming of Jesus. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10-13, through 13, Peter kind of describes what happens at that point. He tells us that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will the stars, the moon, the planets, they'll all be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he asks this question. If the world is going to be destroyed by God at some point, he says, What sort of people ought to you be to to, to be in lives of holiness and, and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of, of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So God's final Process for this world is that he's going to destroy all this and he's going to recreate something new in which there will be no aspect of sin or a fallen nature. We ourselves will get physically, these bodies will be transformed into something new that's different and glorious and righteous and holy. And this world itself will be destroyed because of all the wicked curse that's been placed upon us by our sin and it will be created new. And then will come this stage of cosmic perfection. And within it, there will be no more darkness. And the only thing that will be will be the pure, unadulterated light of God's presence. Darkness totally done away with. So I've said a lot to get us to the point where we're going to dig into Romans chapter 13, verse 11 through 14. All right. So let's begin with the life of the times of Christians, because that's who Paul is talking to, that's us. So he tells us this, and we need to understand that we are attempting to put ourselves in a position where we can know or understand the times in which we live. So Romans 13, 11 says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now, here we need to switch our discussion from the stages of this cosmic plan of God. Now we need to get to a more personal level with what does he want from me? How does he want me to respond in the midst of all this that's going on in this world and in my life? And how is the Christian then supposed to walk or live in this world. I think there are five things that we need to look at as well. The first stage is this, original grace. We've already talked about this a little bit. There's been a common misunderstanding since the third century in a lot of churches that every individual that is conceived enters this world with the sin of Adam, and as a result of that, not only is he a sinful person at his conception, but he is a condemned person and is going to hell just by being born of Adam's seed. I don't necessarily agree with that. We talked about that in Romans chapter 5. We looked at this instead of this aspect of original sin. We began to discuss what God has done through Jesus in original grace. And as a result of the act of righteousness of Jesus upon the cross for us, that His life of pureness and holiness and righteousness, sinlessness, that was then sacrificed for you and for me, His grace applies to us and no longer are we condemned to hell by Adam's sin, but that has been removed from us. We, however, are condemned by our own sins. What you do, what I do against God and His commands, against what is right and holy, now I'm going to pay the penalty for my sin. Okay, so we, we dig into this a little bit here. Now, stage two then is what we would call the age of accountability. That happens with different times for everybody, depending on their circumstances, when they were born and how they were raised, and and the aspect of the knowledge in which they gained in their life. So how do we define this age of accountability? The idea, of course, is that it's a time when a child becomes consciously aware of what is right and what is wrong, when they know that this is good and this is bad. All right? So when they become, have enough knowledge about what sin is, they are now held accountable to God for their sin. And it's at this stage in which the child intentionally begins to participate in things of the darkness rather than things of the light. They make the choice to go against God. Romans chapter 13 speaks about this. But here's a crucial point. It has nothing to do with how much a child loves Jesus or knows about Jesus. All children reach this age of accountability if they live long enough, even if they live in a pagan society that doesn't even talk about Jesus. Because they will even go against their own standards of right and wrong. And Romans has told us that. And we are without excuse. We know what is right by nature. Because, again, we'll go back to Adam and Eve, we are not only created in the image of God because that's how they were created, but you see there in Genesis that we are also created in the image of Adam. And at that point, he contained the knowledge of good and evil. We ourselves innately know what is right and what is wrong, whether we've been told that or not. we come to an understanding of that. So The main thing is that children must become aware of their own sinfulness. And in so doing, they learn about God and His laws. And they learn how they have broken those laws. And, and knowing what it means to be under the wrath of God. And when that child comes to this point of accountability, he's in need of knowing the gospel message, this message of grace and forgiveness. And so there's where we need to really communicate with them the love of God against the wrath of God for their wrongdoing and that his love is expended to them through Jesus now at that age they can then say that I'm going to be obedient to the gospel message because I'm going to put my faith in Jesus Christ I'm going to repent of my sins I'm going to confess that Jesus is Lord I'm going to be baptized and immersed into his name and I'm going to live my life by the standard that he wants me to live When they get to the point where they can be held accountable for those decisions, that's where we are today. So then we move on to this new part of stage three of our own life as being a Christian, which is called becoming a new creation. Now, in this new creation, there are a few steps that take place. The first one is where we are right now in our life and in our relationship as as Christians today. When a sinner obeys the gospel message and they become a Christian, Everything, with one exception, the physical body becomes new. That's the aspect of who I am. My character, my soul, my heart, my inner being. I am renewed by what God has done. But my physical body doesn't change. It's still the same. It still has all the markings and the assembly of what I was before. There's no difference in it. Not yet. That will take place later. Right? But in this aspect, we leave the darkness of the sinful world. And we start to walk in the light as Jesus is the light. We walk in Him. Now Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 and 14 says that He has delivered us from the domain of darkness And He has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. We used to live in darkness. We belonged to the kingdom of darkness. But when we became a Christian, we were transferred from that dark world into a new kingdom, which is the kingdom that belongs to the Son of God, which is the kingdom of light. And the Bible describes it as becoming this new creation. So Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All right? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul tells the church there that we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So if we are this new creation, what are we created to do? Well, you're created to do good, not bad. And God had made all the preparation for you to do that. He did all that preparation through his son Jesus coming into the world. And so now he's created you in this newness in Christ to do what is right, what is holy, what is good. What is pleasing to him. Personally, we've been changed, I think, in two distinctive ways. The first is that we are then made right with God. And it means that we are justified. And as a result of that, there's no condemnation. So Paul will tell us, as he did in Romans 8, chapter 1, that, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who were where? In Christ Jesus. Okay? So... We're undergoing this purification process by the Holy Spirit whom He has put in us and is daily making us more and more like Christ. No longer do I live the way I did in the darkness of this world. I've left that kingdom and now I'm in a different kingdom which belongs to the Son of God. And I am being transformed and renewed in my inner being to be made like Christ. I am empowered him. And it means that our spirits have been regenerated. I am no longer the same, alright? I am born again by the Holy Spirit when I was baptized into Christ. And that spirit now empowers me to be able to do the things that are right and holy. And those changes have taken place not only at the level of our spirits and our souls. This body that we have now will not actually undergo a purification process itself. But in the end, this physical body is going to be changed and transformed. It's going to go away, and I get a new one. Which leads me to this second step of this new creation. Now, this is the period between when I, as a Christian, die, and when Jesus comes again. All right? So what happens We know he hasn't come yet, and yet I know that I have loved ones that have put their faith in him, that have died. And many of us may die before he returns. So what happens? Well, most Christians, as we die, we will transition into a different period. All right, The physical death, this body is gone, and there is no more life in its presence, but there still is life in the spiritual sense. And my body as spirit lives on. And it's the stage of our spirit is being perfected with no more sin within it because now I can be in the very presence of God. I am clothed in holiness and in righteousness as a spiritual life as I should be. Hebrews chapter 12 really shows us how how this takes place. He says, you have come to Mount Zion So when we die, we are as spirits still in the very presence of God along with His angels, there with Him. This physical body doesn't get to go there. All right, Paul will later go on and tell us in in 1 Corinthians 15 that if there is a physical body, a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. This body doesn't get to inherit that which is immortal. It can't. It's going to decay. It's going to go back to the dust from which it came. But I am still alive in spirit but there will be a point when I will get a new body. All right, so, at this time, we just simply exist in spirit until the final moment of redemption when Jesus returns, which then gets me to this final stage, eternity in heaven. Really, this could be considered step three of the process of, of this new creation, but there will be no further qualitative changes to us After this, this will be our final state of life. The second coming includes not only the visible appearance of Jesus in the clouds of heaven, just as he ascended before his disciples' eyes. He will come back, all right? But with him, there will be a host of angels. And, he says, the spirits of those who have died before. So I know, as you were talking about Gene, he'll probably be leading the charge. Yes. You know, there will be those that we have loved, that we will have the opportunity to see them coming on the clouds of heaven with the angels and with Christ leading the way, and they will be right there in spirit. So we know that this is going to take place. And there's there's this this aspect then at that time. We will be joining all of the spirits of the dead with their new bodies designed for eternal destiny. Because as they come, this transformation now, as they will receive a new body, and those who are still alive at that point, we will not have to die first, but we will be transformed as well. With the ability then to be in an eternal body... One that will not decay, that will not waste away, that will not feel the pains of broken bones or cuts and bruises, but a holy body. But there will be two major events that transpire on that day as well. The first is what we call Judgment Day. When every person who has lived on this earth will stand before the divine judge of heaven to give an account who they are and what they've done The second is the renovation then of the physical universe by a holy fire that this world that this solar system that everything that God has created is going to be burned up with a blazing fire of heaven and then it will be a newness that is created of a new heaven and a new earth and a new, new world of all things new So let's turn our attention now to Romans chapter 11, verse 13 to 14, where Paul challenges us now to know the time in which we live so that we can reject the darkness and walk in the light. So what is it about knowing the time of which we live? He says there in verse 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to awake from your sleep for salvation is nearer now than when we first believed the night is far gone. The day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Do you know what time it is? I mean, my clock here says it's 9.57. That's probably pretty accurate according to the celestial, whatever. <laughs> uh, well, at least according to atomic time. So we got to figure out what time is it? For us in this. Do you know the nature of this period of time in which we live? (coughs) There's a period of time that was called dark, and there's a period of time that is called light. We're still living under the old creation period, existing underneath the old rules of the God of this age, the God of darkness, the prince of this world. And we're being smothered with darkness of sin and immorality. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We still live in a period of time in which the God of this world, that is Satan, He is still blinding the eyes of people who do not believe in Jesus, so they just don't get it. They can't see the light of the gospel. And the other period is compared to daytime, which is the imagery of truth and sound doctrine. It's the light of God's revelation, the gospel, which enables us to see the reality for for truth and what it really is. And, And where we are as Christians in relation to light and darkness... Do you really know where you are personally? Here's a clue. Paul says, it's time to wake up. He says, there's a lot of us. There's a lot of Christians who put their faith in Jesus that they've gone to sleep. They're dozing. They're not attentive. They're not alert to things that are going on around them. And he tells us that the day of full light of salvation is nearer now than the first day that you put your faith in him. So what does this nearer mean? 2 Peter 3, verse 8 and 9, Peter gives us this understanding. He says, I don't want you to overlook this one fact. Right? That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. So the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Understand this, Peter says the time of heaven, it doesn't rotate around our celestial kind. It has nothing to do with the the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planets and their orbits around this universe. Because it's of a different time nature. The day of the Lord is near. And you can't count it by days or years. Because in heaven, a thousand years is just a simple day. And yet also a day in heaven is a thousand years near on earth. You don't know the time of his return, but it is soon. And Peter's already told us it's going to come like a thief in the night when you don't even realize it's going to happen. It'll happen. So we need to be awake and we need to be alert and we need to be prepared. The time of heaven is now. And unfortunately, some Christians are still dozing and they aren't even trying very hard to fight sin and to live in righteousness. Matter of fact, they still enjoy the cover of dark and participate in the sins of this flesh. They try to please their physical desires rather than pleasing God. You see, in the Bible, when he uses the terminology sleep, often it will refer to complacency or, or apathetic indifference or, or, or a lukewarmness. You're just kind of there. And we need to wake from our apathetic indifference and begin to live the kind of life that belongs in the daylight and not in the night. You see, we're supposed to walk in the light of Christ and we're supposed to radiate the light light of Christ. So are you doing it? Are you walking in the light? Which brings me to the third thing. We need to walk in a manner that's consistent with the light of Christ. So Romans 13:12 and 13 says that the night is far gone. If you've become a Christian, that night's over. It's far gone. You've buried that darkness. You now live in the light. He says, "So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. So how do we do this? How do we walk in the light and not in the dark? How do we live like we're in the day of Christ and, and, and do all these things? Well, he says, you got to change your clothes. You've got to cast off, you've got to throw off, you've got to get rid of the clothes of the darkness, and you've got to put on that which is of the armor of light. So we change our clothes. That's why he says, so let us cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. What we're clothed in identifies who we are in the manner in which we are living. Our lifestyle, our words, our actions, our deeds, our relations with people. That lets people know whether or not we are truly of Christ or we're still in this world. So we're supposed to cast off the works of darkness. Now, even Star Wars gets it that there's a dark side. Right? You've got to get rid of that dark side. You've got to take off that clothing. You've got to put on something that is new. You know, we've been told that clothes make the man, right? Here's the truth of that. What are you clothing in? So we're to put off the darkness and we're to put on the armor of life. And those characteristics of godliness and goodness is usually seen in the light of day. I want you to also note that there is a military connotation in this kind of clothing. It is the armor of light. We're in a battle against the kingdom of darkness. All right? And you've got to be armed for that battle. Ephesians chapter 6 has a beautiful discussion there on putting on this specific armor to fight this kind of battle. And as Christians, we have passed from death to life, from dark to light, but acting like and living like that we are in the light, is not automatic. You have to work at it each and every day. You've got to make the choice to walk in the light as He is in the light. It just doesn't happen naturally because the natural body loves darkness. Paul then says that let's walk properly. (laughs) In other words, Let's behave, all right? Let's, let's, uh, we, we've got to get rid of those character flaws and actions that perpetuate the deeds of darkness. And he begins to list quite a few of these deeds of darkness. And he, sa- he says, you've got to look at the orgies. I mean, this wild, uninhibited living and partying and carousing around with others. What this makes me think about are college frat parties, all right? Where anything goes. He ties it right along with drunkenness. Which goes hand in hand with orgies, because to begin with, most people need—they need a little bit of inebriation to get them to do things that they normally would not do out in the public, right? So, if you're drunk, it's easier to do the stupidity of life than if you're in your right mind. But eventually, your right mind has become so callous that everything evil seems normal. He says we need to. Put aside sexual immorality. I mean, here actually that word wording is, is in a plural form. Indicating that there is promiscuity in the sense of any time, anywhere, any kind, any way, anyone, guilt-free sex. He ties that along with this next word, sensuality. Well, sensuality sounds good. Perfect. Some commentators have said that this is the ugliest word in the Bible. Because when you look at this, what it is making reference to is lewdness, licentiousness, lasciviousness, filthy, debauchery lifestyle. How can you say it any worse than it's only caring about your physical pleasures than anything else? And you're always thinking about how do I satisfy this body's physical needs? Of illicit sex. He throws in two other words, quarreling and jealousy. Now these go hand in hand as well. I mean, they talk about division and and, strife and this always bickering and arguing back and forth. But it stems because of the jealousy where you want things your way and you want to get what they have. And so you are driven then by that envy and jealousy to do whatever it takes to get it. I mean, these are just examples of the many deeds that are done in in the darkness. But Paul lays out just a few here. He says we need to get rid of these things from our lifestyle. So in essence what he's saying is you either either need to live for Jesus or you need to live for yourself. You can't have it both ways. So he tells us there in verse 14, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ equals putting on light. In John 8, verse 12, again, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, in baptism, we are told that we put on Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 Paul says, for as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You have clothed yourself with Christ. You've taken off the clothing of the darkness of this world and you have put on the clothing of Christ. And that takes place in your baptism. And when we are put on the clothing of Christ, of His righteousness, of His justification, of His glorification, when we are clothed in Him, if you have not been baptized, you have not been clothed in Christ. I don't know whose clothing you're wearing, but it's not his. So don't fool yourself and don't let others fool you either. You need to be baptized to put on the clothing of Christ. There's no way around it. Isaiah 61 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with the jewels. Philippians chapter 3 verse 9 says, And to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is telling us we have to be clothed in Christ and we have to imitate him in this life in which we're living. Christian You cannot walk around disguised as somebody of this dark world. You have to live and let the light of Christ shine through you. You are a lighthouse in the storm. And people are going to look to you to find their salvation in Him. You've got to be clothed in Christ. He's telling us we have to put on Christ's... And how we live displays that. Verse 14 says, You put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he says, And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Flesh is not sinful nature. Flesh is flesh. It is this physical, unredeemed body that is going to be eventually destroyed either by my death and its decay or when Jesus comes, he's going to say, away with that. Here's a new one. Right? Our flesh is a remnant of the darkness from which we have been delivered. But it's still hanging on. And my flesh likes things of this world that I've got to tell it no. And I guarantee you, your flesh likes the things of this world. And as a Christian, you've got to tell it no. It doesn't win. The Spirit of God that lives within you is how you are to be controlled. Not by this flesh, but by Him desires they may be called lusts of the flesh, especially if they have evil intent. we got to push against these things, and we must take care not to leave any door open that's going to allow sin to creep in. Philip Pendleton, he, he wrote the, the fourfold gospel, which is a harmony of the, of the gospels. He makes this statement. He said, we must go on tiptoe and act with extreme caution so as not to awaken in us Those slumbering dogs of lust, which if aroused will tear our spiritual life to pieces. Mm. Awake, O sleep. It says make no provision. Now, when I'm thinking about making no provision, that means I'm not making any plans. I'm not preparing for an opportunity To satisfy this flesh. So how does that play out? Well, when my wife's away, what can I do? Right? Hey, when the parents are gone for the weekend, kids, what can you get into, right? When the kids are gone, mom and dad. We get it when the boss is away. And we begin to make plans for when we see that there's an opportunity to sin that nobody's going to know about. This is when we say, make no provisions. Don't make any plans to sin. But unfortunately, we live in this flesh that wants us to do those things. We've got to control it. I'm going to close with this. It's John chapter 3, verse 19 to 21. Jesus makes this statement. He says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We need to walk in the light. You need to put to death the body of sin. You need to bury it. And you need to clothe yourself in Christ. I'm going to challenge you this. If you've not been baptized, if you've not repented of your sins, if you've not confessed Jesus as your Lord, if you don't believe in Him yet, You don't have much time. You really don't. And I can't give you a a second minute hour. I just know it's it's near. And it is nearer now than it was just a moment ago. Mm -hmm. You need to make a decision for Christ. Quit putting it off. Seriously. Don't put it off put him on